0: Hi,
1: Sarah. Hi, Allison. So, Paris is under siege. Mm-hmm. Well, not really. Okay, I'm being a little hyperbolic, <laughs> I guess. No, not yet. But, um, but farmers from all over the country are closing in on the capital. Some of them say they want to shut down food supplies to really drive home their protests against soaring costs and cheap food imports that they say is putting their livelihoods at risk.
2: Yeah, so they're rolling in, uh, trying to encircle Paris on their tractors. Mm -hmm. This uh, has come after a couple of weeks of road blockages around the country. They've been dumping some of their produce of hay bales, making themselves very, very visible. Farmers say they're not Paid enough. Uh, Of course, that's a common complaint these days, uh, coming from a lot of different sectors.
1: Yeah, yeah. But farmers also say they're overburdened with environmental regulations from France and from the EU. Um, Produce and meat farmers are also saying that imports are undercutting their production. And while you could just see this as just another French protest, Mm -hmm. um, it's actually touching on a lot of very fundamental issues in France and also around the world. You know, inflation, higher costs, of course, but also climate change policies, food sovereignty. In France, it's also very personal, as many farms are still individually owned and quite small. Mm -hmm. Farmers are finding themselves caught up in this bigger problem of trying to stay in business and providing affordable food for the population. That's farmer Bertrand Van Elsland. Our colleague Baptiste Coulon went to go see him on his cattle farm in Normandy, in northern France. Last year, I had 97,000 euros of charges. A year before, I had 70,000. He said. Allez filles, c'est que des filles. Les nards, ils aiment bien ça nous laisser. Viens là. Allez. The cost of what he feeds his 70 cows has increased dramatically over the past few months. Grain, potatoes, sugar beets.
2: Three
1: years ago, beets cost 23 euros a ton. Those same beets today cost 45 euros a ton. The cost of fuel for his tractor has also doubled over the past year, And while the price of meat has gone up, he hasn't been seeing any of it, as it's been eaten up by production costs, and he feels like he's lost money. Despite an increase in the cost of meat, which is about 1,000 euros per animal, he says, we've seen an increase in the production costs of more than 1,000 euros per animal, so the net profit is less than we had before. Van Elsland is 52 years old. He's been farming for over 25 years, and he still pays himself minimum wage. Subsidies from the European Common Agricultural Policy cover about half of his yearly income, but these days it's been arriving late.
2: Uh, and it's been pegged to environmental measures mm-hmm. to encourage farmers to do things like setting aside some fallow land or experimenting with solar
1: panels. Yeah, yeah. And while farmers in France really have shifted, there's much more accepting that climate change is something they are affected by and can affect, they say they aren't being given the tools and the means to adapt to these new regulations. Plus, Van Elsland says regulations means he has to file a lot of paperwork, which takes him away from doing his job as a farmer. That, plus the financial difficulties, makes him wonder about the long-term viability of this profession.
2: Dès qu'on fait quelque chose dans les champs, il
1: faut tout enregistrer. As soon as you do anything in your fields, you need to record it and pay someone even more to make sure it meets the state standards, he says. We're wondering why we're turning into secretaries and not producers of food for the nation. He says he wonders sometimes if it's worth continuing being a farmer. This kind of frustration has been brewing for a while among farmers. In France, they've been raising the alarm about their abysmally low salaries for the last several years.
2: And there have been reports of farmers taking their own lives, even. Mm -hmm. Uh, Suicide rates in the agricultural sector are 30% higher than in the rest of the population.
1: Yeah, yeah. And a protest movement has been brewing since late last year. Farmers started turning town signposts Mm -hmm. upside down. Yeah, it was a
2: kind of quirky campaign, wasn't it? It was called marche sur la tête. Mm -hmm. We're literally walking on our heads or everything's a bit crazy. It's an expression in France that means that, yeah, things have gone haywire, things are contradictory.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as I said before, French farming is still very much dominated by small, individually owned farms. So unlike in the US and other places in Latin America or China, where factory farming with thousands of animals and huge tracts of land, here in France, more than half of French farms are individually owned. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2020, most of them are animal, you know, cattle, pork, chicken farms, and most farmers own their own land. There are nearly 400,000 farmers, um, the average surface of their land is 69 hectares. So it's not very big. Bertrand van Elsland, who we heard earlier with his 70 cows is actually quite typical. But being small makes it difficult to negotiate up the food chain. Grocery stores are looking to buy at the lowest prices, but now they're under pressure to lower prices even more for consumers in the face of inflation. So the yearly negotiations between farmers, you know, producers, and Mm. then the distributors have just wrapped up. Agroeconomist Marine Raffray from the French Agricultural Chamber says the EGALIM law, which was first introduced in 2018, was intended to ensure that farmers receive proper compensation for what they sell to grocery stores
3: sait que les agriculteurs sont we know that farmers are quite defenseless in their commercial negotiations they have less power than agrobusiness companies the Aguilum law is intended to protect them better that there are contracts signed with their buyers that they cover their production costs les coûts de production the government says that these laws need to be controlled more both in the contract and higher up in the food chain between buyers and grocery chains.
1: So there are price issues at home, but there's also the issue of imports. Produce and meat coming from elsewhere is often cheaper because farmers don't have to adhere to the same environmental regulations. Christian Lambert, president of the COPA Agricultural Lobbying Group, who used to preside the FNSCA Farmers Union, says that farmers want a fair deal agriculteurs français ne sont pas contre le commerce. La difficulté, French farmers aren't against trade. The problem is that the rules in different countries are not the same, and this
3: creates a distorted competition. When you allow products that follow different rules, the prices are always cheaper. We need trade.
1: France exports wine, cheese, seeds, wheat, certain pieces of pork that the French don't eat. We export and we import. But we're asking for mirror clauses, rules and reciprocity, to make sure that products that come into France are not being dumped socially and environmentally. And that involves a lot of work. So here you see the intersection of inflation and social policy with foreign policy, because you know, while European regulations apply to all EU countries in the same way, European directives can be applied or not. It gets very complicated mm-hmm. there. And then countries like Ukraine don't have to follow a lot of them at all. Um, the EU has signed agreements to import agricultural products like chickens from Ukraine since the start of the war in 2022. And that's flooded the market with things like cheap chicken. And then to add another layer to all of this, <laughs> each farming sector has different issues. So a French chicken farmer has different needs and a different setup than a wine grower. Mm. And those are different from grain farmers who produce a large amount of grain for export.
2: So you can see, can't you, why it's so complicated for mm-hmm. the government to come up with a one size fits all solution. And so its response up to now has been rather piecemeal.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the new prime minister, Gabriel Attal, you know, he keeps talking keeps going on TV, making pronouncements here and there. Um, A few days ago, he agreed to not drop subsidies for diesel for all farmers. That's one thing. Tuesday, he brought up fiscal support for meat farmers. He introduced a rescue package for wine growers. None of this, though, has been particularly satisfying to farmers who continue their blockades. The major issues of regulations and international competition can't even really be solved at the French level anyway. Mm. France is part of Europe and the EU negotiates a lot of this stuff.
2: And that includes a trade deal with Latin America known as Mercosur, which France now says it will not agree to.
1: Yeah, that was another announcement. Mm. Um, And of course, all of this (laughs) European stuff means opening the political way for the far right to come in and bash. Europe even more. Mm. Everyone is now looking to a European Commission summit in Brussels that's actually being held today to see reactions on that level. What's clear though is that this is far from over. So this isn't the first time France has seen farmers protesting, of course. Yeah, farmer protests are pretty common, though not usually on this scale. Jess Vilan is here to bring us back in time to some of these past protests. Hi, Jess.
0: Hi. Yeah, so I was interested to know how far back these kinds of demonstrations go. And it turns out there have really been a lot of farmers' protests in the past 100 years or so mm. in France for all the various reasons that you've just been talking about. So there were really too many to mention. I'll just give you a couple of examples. The earliest one was actually the biggest. It was in 1907 when wine growers in the south, in Languedoc et Roussillon, started protesting about cheap wine that were being imported from Algeria or that were being made in France by kind of adding sugar to other wine Mm. (laughs) Um, and these wine growers started going from town to town every week holding rallies and they ended up with a huge amount of support from the wider public, even from local government and at one rally there were up to 800,000 people.
2: Wow, that's a lot bigger than today's protests, isn't it? Which involve around, well between 10 to
0: 50,000 people Yeah, so for context the biggest farmer's march since then in 1991, that drew around 200,000 people. So you can see the the scale of this 1907 one was was huge.
1: Yeah. So though that first one about the wine, I mean, that many people, it must have been more than just the price
0: of wine. Yeah, definitely. So it it touched on a lot of really emotive issues like traditional livelihoods, regional identity, this resentment at kind of out of touch decision makers in Paris. We still
1: hear that today.
0: <laughs> exactly. These are the same kind of things that come up again and again in farmers protests throughout the ages. So what happened then to the winemakers in Languedoc? Well, the government in Paris sent in the army to get things under control and there were riots. Seven people were killed. Some of the soldiers actually ended up mutinying um, and the government agreed to introduce quality controls on wine. Um, but this this issue all simmered up again, actually, in the early 1970s. And by then, France was part of the European Common Market. So there were even more imports To compete with. And wine growers in in the same southern region, they started blocking train lines, blocking roads, chopping down telephone poles, attacking government buildings. They've even been called wine terrorists. Mm. (laughs) And this all came to a head in 1976, when wine growers were involved in a shootout with riot police, one farmer and one officer were killed. That is an exception, isn't it? I mean, most protests aren't so deadly. Yeah, that's right. Well, not for humans anyway, as Uh. I'll explain. So like I mentioned, you tend to see the same broad issues coming up over and over in farmers' protests and imports are an absolutely massive one. Um, And of course, as more and more countries joined the European free trade zone in the 70s and 80s, the more competition French farmers had from abroad. So in the 1980s, the price of meat was falling and French farmers blamed it on imports. And in January 1984, they hijacked three trucks from the UK that were bringing over beef and lamb. They burned some of the meat and they handed the rest out to local hospitals and religious orders for free Um, Mm -hmm. and they held two of the truck drivers captive for a day and a half. Oh, like like as hostages? Well, not quite. Uh They weren't threatening them. Um, In fact, they later said they'd given them apple brandy and treated them very nicely. Mm -hmm. Um, But they did commandeer the British trucks and they drove Drove them from northwest France down to Paris. Now, the British government, as you can imagine, complained to the French government about all this, and the drivers were set free, unharmed. Um, but the British papers, of course, had an absolute field day with mm. this. Alison, as a fellow Brit, you know the Sun tabloid is famous for its headlines. Can you guess what they called the incident?
2: Yeah, there must be lamb or a lamb chop in there somewhere, yeah, maybe.
0: Yeah. Okay. So the the headline in the Sun was. Lambush, as in L (laughs) (laughs) apostrophe, ambush. Oh, wow.
2: (laughs) Um, It's about the best thing to come out of the Sun newspaper was their headlines. (laughs) Of yours, Delors, and all the rest of it. Exactly.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as you can imagine, the Sun being, you know, prone to French bashing, they called for a total boycott of all French goods in response to this. Um, but this this actually wasn't the last time that this kind of thing happened. A few years later, meat prices were down again, and French farmers started setting up roadblocks to stop foreign trucks. And in 1990, there were actually some horrible incidents where they set trucks on fire with live animals inside. E. Hundreds of British sheep were burned. Some were poisoned, and in another case, the farmers threw insecticide on the sheep so that their meat couldn't be eaten. Well, that's pretty extreme. Yeah. So you don't see so many of those kind of tactics anymore. It's it's more common to see the sort of stunts that farmers are using today, such as you know dumping their own produce uh, or driving tractors in convoys towards cities or bringing their livestock into the city. That's a, a favourite one. There are actually some great photos of farmers setting loose their cows and sheep under the Eiffel Tower over the years.
2: Yeah, You can see those on RFI's website and read more about the history of French Farmers protesting.
0: Yes, that's right. I've written about some other notable protests in history, like the Great Artichoke Wars and the time that farmers tore down a McDonald's. You can find that article at RFIEnglish.com. <laughs>
2: Sarah, um, what was your experience of learning maths at school? Cast your mind back.
1: Ah, um, Math, well, I mean, I didn't love it, I have to admit, but I didn't hate it. Um, I do remember having a bit of a an epiphany there's a high school teacher who talked about how math can help structure our way of thinking and Mm. I started thinking okay maybe that redeems (laughs) this whole subject I mean of course this was long after I knew I wasn't going to become a professional mathematician
2: yeah how about you I had similar feeling I really liked it as a kid I remember enjoying it getting a kick out of getting something right Mm. getting 10 out of 10 which was never possible in other subjects so very satisfying but I I dropped it uh, at the age of 16 Ah. Um, it got it got just a little bit too abstract so Mm. when I was no longer any good at it I left it (laughs) um Anyway, this brings me on to a question which is much more French, which is that France has a big problem with maths Ah. now. Despite the fact it's a highly valued subject, a number of international studies have shown that levels here are slipping. The PISA Global Study of Education Standards last year placed France in 23rd position Mm. and referred to an unprecedented decline in student performance with results among the lowest ever measured Ow. Yeah, yeah. Ouch. A major embarrassment for the government, which is now said that it will reintroduce streamed classes. So according to your level, in both maths
1: and French in middle school from this autumn. Yeah, that's uh, been putting teachers out into the streets. Mm-hmm. They're protesting already against that, seen as very unequal. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there is this real obsession with math here. Yeah, it's a thing, you know, and it's linked to, in a way
2: to a sort of elitism. To uh-huh. be honest, you know, doing well in maths is one way of entering into the, you know, higher echelons of academia and society mm-hmm. more globally, like the
1: Grande Ecole, and that's how you kind of get in and eventually, yeah. I guess, become president.
2: I don't know, <laughs> but uh, it's you know, it's just a it's it's just the subject to be good at, yeah. and it gets you instant recognition sure. when you are. But, and here's what's interesting, it's also very gendered. Ah. Yeah, And this is something that Clémence Perronnet, a sociologist who's done a lot of work on gender and science, talked to me about.
4: We have very prestigious programmes that produce some of the top uh, mathematicians of the world. So we have this excellence in in mathematical research that uh, the country is extremely proud of. At the same time, we are one of the worst countries in the world when it comes to gender, but also social equality for math learning and, uh, and studying. And this has an impact on class inequalities, but also on gender inequalities and in relations because this elitism and this very competitive and this focus on excellence, well, what is deemed um, excellence, has consequences because... Gender inequalities are so that when you over select people, you tend to disadvantage women because they are not perceived as having these qualities as being faster, better, and has having this excellence quality. So the the specificity of the situation of math in France produces this result of having a selection of happy few that represent excellence at the international level and then these these huge and very, very unequal gaps for the, the general population.
2: And yet, if you really want to have excellence in science... Surely what you want is to have a very big pool of people and not necessarily a majority of male brains. Well,
4: it actually depends on what you value. And it's actually a a very important political choice to make. Do you want to select a very small number of people and bring them to the top? Or do you want good and fair education? for, uh, for uh, as many students as you can. It's really a choice. And for now, it is made in favor of uh, picking a few, a happy few um, researchers. It's privileged and white men mostly.
2: So so math is a men's thing. It is. Uh, research mm. has shown that girls are tending to grow up thinking that it's not for them. But there is no reason for this.
3: Well, I really enjoyed mathematics. A lot of fun and everybody could do it. I really think that everybody can do it.
2: That's Colette Gupe. She's a French mathematician with a long high-level career. She specialised, for example, in applied maths, studying rivers and tsunamis, so very useful stuff. Mm. It hasn't always been easy for her to work in a very male-dominated area, but she grew up thinking maths was for her, and that's made all the difference.
3: It always has been a male subject, a very competitive subject and a male subject. I was brought up in a only women's school, girls school and there was no problem. It was our subject as well as my brother's subject and even after high school, after the baccalaureate, I started to go in a boys and girls class, in a mixed, school. mixed school and there were very few girls because I was in a competitive program and I just could not believe and see boys doing math. On the contrary, I knew how girls would do math but I could not believe that Boys could do it even though my father was a math teacher and now in that public or private mixed schools Girls just believe they cannot do it even when they're very very young They're being told that mathematics or science is not for them. It's for boys
2: Now, the idea that girls can't do maths as well as boys sets in very early. A recent report found that, as early as six years old, girls were beginning to fall back in maths. And by the age of 17, one out of two girls in France will drop maths compared to just one out of four boys. Clemence Perronnet has conducted a lot of research into this for her new book, Mathes, Filles, Avenir des mathématiques" Girls, the Future of Maths. She says there's a kind of gender division of the sciences including maths and it starts very young.
4: Children learn values and representations and what is supposed to be for instance a girl and a boy or a man and a woman. So it's not really surprising that children learn all those things extremely early and we also have other studies that shows that at the same age roughly at six or seven years old children start to say that Uh, girls are less intelligent than boys. So everything is learned very, very early. But this particular study that shows that the gap in performance in math appears very early, I think we should be cautious because this comes after many other studies that shows us that there is actually no performance gap between teenagers, for instance. What we know is that as years old, at 15 years old, there is no performance gap between girls and boys in mathematics. And this can be explained by other factors, such as the the belief that girls are more adapted to school and to the school settings than boys are, because they they are brought up to be more respectful of authority and of uh, these kind of settings. Mm -hmm. So this is a complicated subject. So this last. Study must not make us think that girls drop out of math at six and then never bridge the gap.
2: Okay, they may be performing equally well, but there are fewer of them. Because, as I think you've said yourself, girls are more likely to drop maths as a subject at the end of high school than boys. So surely that is the issue, because you just have fewer girls going into higher studies in science and maths, and then, of course, getting these very prestigious jobs. Absolutely. For now, what we know is this paradox,
4: the fact that girls tend to perform as well as boys, but they don't go into these science courses and higher education studying math or engineering or uh, computer sciences. So this is the issue we are working with. And one, one key, one answer to that surprising fact is that the performance of girls is never perceived analyzed and described the same as the performance of boys. So with equal results, for instance, in your test or equal grades that you may get in the classroom, you are not seen the same and your results is not attributed to the same factors. Girls, the result they get are always perceived as a consequence of their hard work. and and the fact that they train a lot and the fact that they make a lot of efforts. Whereas boys' results, when they are good, tend to be perceived as a consequence of some kind of genius and some kind of rapidity of thinking and logical thinking. And this is very apparent when we see the way that teachers talk about their students, uh, when they grade papers and also when they have to assess a student at the end of the year. So the same performance is not uh, perceived equally uh, for boys and for girls, and this is really important because it really shapes aspirations and it shapes what you think you will be able to do later on, and France especially. Since important and prestigious courses in um, in higher education tend to be very competitive and tend to really rely on these um, discourses about excellence and about competition, when your success is not actually described as intelligence or as high capacity, then you don't really see yourself going into this kind of uh, education later
2: on. So you've written this book called Matters, Les Filles, Avenir des mathématiques," Good at Maths, uh, Girls, Future of Maths. What are you advocating for to sort of break this vicious cycle, which means that girls are not seeing themselves as being as good as boys in maths, even though they may be?
4: one very important uh, result and point of the book is to try and forget all these discourses that are blaming the girls. We've been saying that girls lack self-confidence. Or for instance, with everything I said, the summary was that there is this self-fulfilling prophecy. So we tend to go back to the girls or the women later on, what they do, what they feel, and this is very problematic because mm. it's a way of putting the blame on the girls and on the women. And it's a way of erasing what's happening to them and what is actually being done to them. It's like they surprisingly lack confidence or they surprisingly mm. don't see themselves as being good enough. And so one of the key points of the book is going behind And trying to find the reason for that and saying lack of self-confidence is never the starting point. It's never the cause. It's always the consequence of what happens to girls in school, but in society more widely. And mostly we have to try and stop all the sexist and sexual violence that they experience very early on. We know that about 10% of high school girls experience sexual aggressions. And uh, the more they go into science, the more they are exposed to violence. In the recent years, we've discovered that about 25% of girls in very prestigious science universities like Polytechnique or Centrale experienced sexual aggressions. So it's a huge number. If we want to do something about it, it's not about the girls. It's not them that we have to change. Mm-hmm. We have to change the context, what's going on to them.
1: So so what do we do about getting more
2: French girls into math? Well, both of the women I spoke to are trying to change the equation, uh, if you like. Mm-hmm. They believe that, you know, there's stuff to be done. This is not an automatic thing. Colette Guillaupé is a member of Family Mathematique, Women and Maths. Uh, that association works on encouraging girls to study maths and science. They run, for example, single-sex workshops, mentoring programmes, because it's so important, she says, that girls have role models with people like her. Clémence Perronnet is giving conferences, for example, with teachers showing the gender-bias language and attitudes that can be part of the classroom are often subconscious and can be avoided mm. France does by the way have you know pretty strict legislation on gender equality in schools but it's not always applied that well mm. Both of the women agree that what we need here in France is a big societal shift if girls are going to go further in science we need more diversity across the board all of that is a political
0: choice They traverse the
2: they the conflict. They are a of peace. That's it for Spotlight on France. Uh, this episode was mixed by Cécile Pompiani, with a production of Radio France International.
1: If you want to write to us, we'd love to hear from you. It's spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And if you like the show, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen.
2: You can also find us on Instagram at Spotlight on France.
1: And we'll be back at the end of the month on Thursday, February the 29th. In the meantime, take a listen to previous episodes at RFIenglish.com. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah.